0: Okay. Happy Mother's Day. If you're celebrating that, today's date is May 9th, 2021. We're reading from the big book. We're reading pages 92, beginning with If You Are Satisfied, up to and including page 93 at the bottom, Your Prospect May Belong, and reading that whole paragraph, which continues into page 94. Um, For our reading, reading the text today will be Sharon W. Sharon, uh, followed by a 20-minute share by an unexpected surprise that God had planned for us today, which is Kim. Kim will be our speaker. So, um, Sharon, would you read the text?
1: Yes, thank you. Sharon, Grateful, Recovered, um, Compulsive Overeater in Los Angeles. If you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Show him from your own experience, how the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. Don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him that Possibly he can if he is not too alcoholic, but insists that if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. Keep his attention focused, mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are rightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose. But you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism before you offer a solution. You will soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, of the traits of alcoholic. If his own doctor is willing to tell him that he is alcoholic, so much the better. Even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question if he will. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. If the man be agnostic or atheist, make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. When dealing with such a person, you had better use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. There is no use arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about which he may already be confused. Don't raise such issues no matter what your own convictions are. Your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he is going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well he may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. Let him see that you are not there to instruct him in religion. Admit that he probably knows more about it than you do, but call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. Perhaps your story will help him see where he has failed to practice the very precepts he knows so well. We represent no particular faith or denomination. We are dealing only with general principles common to most denominations.
0: Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon. So without any further introduction, since uh, we're all quite familiar with her, uh, I'm gonna ask Kim to be our speaker today and share on those paragraphs.
2: Thanks, Terry. Yeah, sorry to disappoint everyone, but our speaker had a last minute cancellation. So um, you're stuck with me today. So um, my name is Kim G. and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey Intergroup. Um, I have been in OA since 1994. However, I've been recovered for the last, only the last 10 years since January, 2011. So you can see there was a lot of back and forth um, before I discovered the clear cut directions in this book. Um, my top weight was a size 24. Um, my bottom weight was a size two. And I was also my current current weight, which is a size 10, binging and purging and exercising. So I have experienced all facets of this disease. Um, and I, I absolutely, absolutely love this chapter. Um, you know, I love the idea of working with others. I for me personally, that word sponsor has a lot of old ideas and prejudices. To me, a sponsor um, for the first decade or so in a way meant I was somebody's diet buddy, I was their life coach, I was telling them who to date, what jobs to take, you know, all this stuff that was exhausting. I mean, I admit in step three, I can't manage my own life. And then in step 12, I'm trying to manage other people's lives. And what I love about this book is. What working with with others means is all I'm doing is taking them through this book through this 12 steps so they can have their experience. And because I am allowing the book to do the work, it's not exhausting. I can work with that many more people. And just to kind of, before I go into the text, just to kind of globalize this, to me, working with others is any interaction I have with the still suffering, whether it becomes a one-on-one sponsorship or not. You know, I always mention that the biggest complaint I get in OA is people don't return my phone calls. Please return your phone calls. How frightening is it to put your name in a chat room, to ask, you know, to put your phone number out there and have nobody call you. How awful it is to make a phone call to someone and wait and nobody returns your calls. I mean, that is one of the biggest services that we can work with others is to return those phone calls. You know, I I often um, heard, you uh, you know, all we have is our story, sharing experience, strength and hope. And if all I had was my story, what I can tell you guys is how to relapse for 17 years, to relapse over and over again, all the things that didn't work. Gratefully, I have a lot more than my story. What I have is this book that gives clear cut directions on how I became free. How I, for the last ten years, have had contented abstinence—something I didn't even know was possible—and you know, um, you know, if, if all I'm doing is sharing my story again, you know, let me, let me, let you guys know—I'm a 55-year-old woman. I, I've never, um, you know, I've never had children. I've never been married. I have a master's in accounting. I grew up in New Jersey. Never lived in any other state. Um, went through 12 years of Catholic school. I'm the oldest of three kids. I mean, how many of you can really relate in? Very few percentages. And what these pages that we're going to study is, we're going to show what our experience is as a compulsive overeater. You know, what it feels like to swear off every single morning and find yourself binging the, the fear of this time of year, when we change seasons and I bring out my summer clothes, finding out that nothing fits again, you know, um, the anxiety, the depression, the anger, when I'm not eating and knowing that, you know, if I pick up, I'm going to get some relief and it's going to follow by more misery, but I don't know what else to do, but to pick up that food. I, I think with that, what I just told you, I think I probably wrapped in at least ninety percent of you. So when they say to tell your story, what this this chapter really tells us is tell our story about our compulsive overeating. So if we look at the book, it says here: show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of willpower. You know. Really stressing the allergy of the body and the mental twist that once I ingest certain foods, certain ingredients and certain behaviors, I cannot reasonably predict what's going to happen. Maybe sometimes I'll binge, maybe sometimes I won't, but I can't with 100% accuracy tell you what's going to happen. Now, there are certain foods I can tell you that my favorite food is a tomato. If you told me you're gonna pay me a hundred thousand dollars and if I have one tomato a day for 30 days, I can make that money easily, even though I love tomatoes. But if you said to me, Kim, I want you to have two slices of pizza every day for 30 days, no more, no less. And I will give you a million dollars. I would never make that money. Why? Because I have an allergy of the body. When I ingest certain foods, I create this phenomenon of craving. It intensifies. It never satisfies. That first bite asks for the second bite. That second bite requires the third bite. And the third bite demands the fourth bite. And even when I'm not eating, that's how I can tell I'm a compulsive overeater. The anxiety, the depression, the swearing off, the idea that, that that the food would help me feel good when I was feeling bad, it would increase the celebration, it would decrease the anxiety, it was my companion, it was my best friend, it was my my abusive boyfriend at the same time. That mental twist. And it's it it, it says it here again. If he if he thinks the Sticks to the idea he can still control his drinking, tell him that he possibly can if he's not too alcoholic. So I'm not here to chase anybody down. I'm here to say this is what a compulsive overeater is, according to the big book, explaining this twofold nature, telling how that manifests in my life. If you identify in, I have a solution. If you don't, if you think that you can control it by going back to a conventional diet program, I encourage you to do that. If you think you can do it just by going to meetings and sharing how you're feeling and thinking share it or where it is enough, congratulations, do that. You know, if you're going, if you think that um, the tools only and the discipline of the tools is enough for you, awesome. But if that doesn't work for you, come on back. I don't know about you all, but when I'm being chased, I run away. So this book is really clear. We lay out the spiritual toolkit. We lay out the description of what it means to be a real compulsive overeater, and it's up to people whether they wanna join us on this journey. So again, they're gonna slam that home at the last paragraph in 92. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. You know, we're not gonna go out and have a, you know, a hamburger and OD like someone who's on heroin. What scared me the most was not that I was gonna die of compulsive overeating, but that I was gonna live with, into my eighties or my nineties living in a bed, you know, I, I, my heart breaks when I hear about people that, you know, they have to cut out their windows or cut out their doors because someone is so large and they need to get them to the hospital and they don't fit out their doors or people that who have diabetes as a result of their compulsive overeating, who lose a limb and are blind. That's what I feel is so insidious about our disease. Our disease takes our body one limit a time away from us. You know, if we're, if we're bulimic, if we're anorexic, I mean that bulimic, I mean the the amount of money that people pay on dental work because of throwing up, you know, I had a sponsee once that, you know, she recovered from bulimia, but she was pregnant and the doctor was so concerned because if she threw up, her esophagus was so thin from her throwing up for decades that they were afraid that the esophagus would burst and she would bleed out. I mean, we damage our body so much that we downplay. So it is a fatal malady and it's a miserable, miserable death. Talk about the conditions of body and mind. Once again, that twofold nature, the allergy of the body and the mental twist. Keep his attention focused on your personal experience. So I'm not here to lecture. I'm not here to scream, but I'm also not here to co-sign people's bullshit. My, my opinion, again, I think in OA, we're too nice. We will say, don't leave till the miracle happens. You know, we'll love you till you love yourself. You know, I am so grateful for the people in OA that were more concerned with with, um, saving my life than hurting my feelings. The people that said to me when I would complain about all my binge foods say, you know what, it looks like all those foods have flour in it. Have you ever thought of that? Well, I didn't want to think about that because I didn't want to give up the food. You know, the people that explained to me about this restless irritability discontentment that was the true nature. That's the intolerable situation. If you truly have a food problem, when you put the food down, the problem will go away. If you are a compulsive overeater of the type described in this book, where you have the allergy, the body, the mental twist, the problem starts when the food goes down. Untreated compulsive overeating is incredibly painful. You know, I don't know if the statistics are true but I and I go to AA meetings, they talk about the fact that more people commit suicide in sobriety than when they're drinking. Because the untenable nature of abstinence is so painful. I explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. You know, I'm so grateful for this COVID environment where we can we have a fellowship now that's crossing the world people are finding out about ovaries anonymous that never would have found out except for covid and google probably you know and 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 i can see you know the the craving that people have how hungry people are for this disease and i'm grateful to this fellowship that is reaching out in this time of a pandemic to carry this message of death and weight And it says here, doctors are rightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose. But you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. Once again, I think we said, don't worry, honey. It's gonna be all right. It's gonna be all right. Just, Just come to meetings, get comfortable. Don't worry about putting the food down. We'll love you till you love yourself. We're killing people with that. Letting people know the true nature of their illness is not mean. I'm going to mess up the saying, but it's, it's um, honesty without compassion is cruel, but compassion without honesty will kill. And unfortunately, I think we do that a lot in OA. So it's not mean to help someone see their step one. Why? Because I'm not leaving them there. We have a solution to offer them. I think of this analogy, a compulsive overeater falls in a hole, can't get out. And their family come by, comes by and they cry and oh my god my my son's in the in the in the hole what are we gonna do ah! and our friend walks by and goes what the hell's your problem get out of the damn hole stop it just get out and psychiatrists come by and doctors come by like, let's think about why did you get in the hole let's figure out why you're in the hole let's 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 just let's discuss your childhood and all your issues but then walks by a recovered compulsive overeater and they jump in the hole. And the person goes, what are you doing? Don't worry about it, I know the way out. That is the beauty of our fellowship. We can jump in the hole with people because we know the pain, we know the agony, but we're no longer there. And the way this big book is set up is problem, 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 problem. I don't know about you, but when I used to talk to newcomers, I would tell them about an inventory. I would tell them about sponsoring. I would tell them about amends. And the person's going, oh, I only need to lose 30 pounds. I just had a kid. I need to lose some weight. You know, and, and that, that was the message that was confusing to people. The big book is clear. on What we are selling is the problem. I remember working with a girl that she, she started laughing and she goes, oh my God, Kim, this is like my work, um, my work training meetings. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I'm like a pharmaceutical. I'm a pharmaceutical rep. You know, they teach us, you know, you don't, you don't sell the high blood pressure medication. What you sell is the danger of high blood pressure. And once that danger of high blood pressure is done, suddenly the patient wants the high blood pressure medication. You know, I remember after a week or so after that, I'm watching TV and there's a commercial for Viagra on the TV. And there's no explanation about Viagra, what it does, how it works, what the, you know, what what the medical stuff is. What it is is a gorgeous woman with with eyes going like this, saying, you know, just, just looking at the camera. Because if that man sees that woman and says, I want that woman, suddenly they want the Viagra. So that's what we're doing. We're selling the problem. We're not really selling the solution. So it says at the bottom of 92, even though your protege may not entirely admit his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question, if he will. So the technique is problem, 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 problem. And when someone asks you, how did I escape? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you about step two. Let me tell you about this program of action because now they have a buy-in on it. And we talk about it freely. Don't, you know, I think sometimes we think, well, let's not talk about God. Let's not talk about this. Stuff. We don't want to scare the newcomer away. Once they are in the rooms and they, they want this solution, we should be totally honest. You know, sometimes we think we downplay it. Recovery takes a lot of work. Recovery is a lot of work. But I often tell people, if you're thinking this is a lot of work, why don't you sit down and write, what does your disease demand from you on a daily basis? I don't know about you, but my disease rubbed me around by my hair. It, I can do in one day of recovery, what I couldn't do in five days of my disease. And actually I meant to say this earlier, but if you're not at step 12 right now, think of this as a show and tell operation. But if you're also in the food and in step one, ask yourself, are you sponsorable? When you look at this, is, do you identify in with this allergy of the body, mental twist? And when we start to go through what the directions are, are you willing to take directions from a sponsor? I love how a, a fellow says her recovery began when it went from yeah, but to yes, ma'am. And that's where mine, when I was like, I am out of ideas. I've been in OA for 17 years. In my arrogance, I thought, listen, I've been your inner chair. I've done these steps a thousand times. It's not going to work for me. And someone said to me, listen, how arrogant are you, Kim? This has worked for alcoholics, for drug addicts, for compulsive overeaters, for gamblers, Two step programs. You think you're so goddamn special, it's not going to work for you? And I realized, whoa, that is arrogant. And then when I looked at this book and someone, and I was listening to meetings and talking to people who did this work, I realized I never did the big book 12-step program. What I did is I imitated people's opinions I tried to do by slogans like meeting makers, make it services slimming, share it or wear it. And specifically I did what was, was convenient and I disregarded the rest. So as we're going through this chapter, if you're in the food, ask yourself, are you willing to submit to this clear cut directions that has worked for millions of people over these 80 years. And it says use everyday language to describe some spiritual principles. I remember my, my first real agnostic, man, did she school me? She And it wasn't that she was atheist. She grew up holy roller Baptist. And that word God had such a bad taste in her mouth. So I often do not say the word God till we get to step three. I talk about power because that's what we need. If you are not a religious person, you never need to believe in God, but you need to believe in a power greater than yourself. And that can, you can define it whatever way you want. If you have a specific religion, we're not telling you you have to give up that religion. But we ha- what we're saying is if your powerlessness in step one is complete, then the natural consequence is you need power. And in step two, all you need is the recognition that you need power. And if you could find power in step two, honestly, we wouldn't even need a 12-step program. We could just have a pamphlet, right? No need for a book. Step two is just the submission. I need a power. I use, work the rest of the steps to get access to that power. And then that last paragraph, when it talks about religious education and training, may be far superior to yours, but he may be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. And then he probably knows more about it than you do, but call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied if he would not drink. Now they're talking about, which I can't imagine being a nun or a priest or a rabbi or a pastor or an imam and coming in and being told your problem is your relationship with God. But I like to look at this as people like me, 17 years in OA, what can you tell me about OA? I was your inner grip chair. You know, the people who come in who are the tradition police who start yelling at you for the traditions, but they're binging and purging and, and you know morbidly obese or, or in their disease. All I can say is, listen, you must. You probably know a lot more about it. I can tell you right now, probably 80% of this line know a lot more about the traditions than I do, because I don't know a lot about it. I'm not, I'm not someone that studies the traditions, which is wrong, but it's my truth. Um, but all I can tell you is that I have contented abstinence, that I have not wanted to eat in 10 years. I am not fighting it. I am not cocky or afraid. I have put in, been put in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. So the knowledge of this book is not enough. The question is, are you applying it? I think of a fellow that um, used to live in South Jersey. She doesn't live in South Jersey anymore, but she has memorized this book. You say the word imperative, and she can tell you exactly what pages it's on. She's also deep in relapse and can't get out. So this, to me, is a great place to bring people who have come back in over and over and over and think they know what they think they know it but remind them if they are still eating, whatever they're doing, isn't working. And that's what they told me all that knowledge. I had in a way. If I am still eating, it's not working. And I had to submit, you know, one of the things I would write in my book, um, in, when I would journal, modern step was God make me teachable today. And I remember the day that I just wrote down, God, I want to remain teachable today because I understood now that my powerlessness propelled me to be teachable. And I worked through these steps in a very quick fashion and I have recovered. And specifically for me, it's step 12 because I am 10 years from knowing what it's like to be be in the allergy. But I have to tell you by working with others and teaching others the allergy of the body and the mental twist, I am reminded what it means to be powerless on a daily basis. So my step 12, is someone else's step one. And someone else's step one helps me remind me of my own step one. So I'm so grateful to this meeting. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share. Um, And I will make sure that the the young lady that uh, uh, was unable to make it today, will schedule her later um, in a couple months.
0: So thanks everyone. Thanks Kim. Thanks a lot. Uh,